0: So, Bob, here we are in my office, we and we're looking at each other across the table. It's true. And we're going to answer some questions from the patrons and see if anyone cares. <laughs> Let's do it. So, uh, Andrea from Mexico says, and actually kind of a sad email here. Mm. My very important and very beloved therapist is dying, and she hasn't cut me out of her life during the process. Mm. Although she officially ended our therapy, Mm. um, I'm I'm very grateful that I'm still a part of her life. Mm. But I don't know how to be there, what to say, and when to reach out. (laughs) The very boundaried and professional therapeutic relationship we had is shifting to a much more personal, human, two-person, caring for each other kind of relationship. I don't know how to manage any of this, and I'm very, very sad. I really don't want her to react to me for my sake, because I am and will be okay. Bob, what do you think?
1: Um, there's something really sweet and lovely about the whole thing. I get, though, that it feels weird that, you're, that that things have shifted in this way, and it seems as though you're relating like to humans here, dealing with something about as human as it gets your therapist mortality. Um, I can, I can understand the kind of the oddness of it in that, you know, you don't have a, a sort of a, like a script for how this, how this, what your relationship is now. And it's probably be a bit bumpy for both of you at least a little bit. Bumpy is a bit strong. I think actually just sort of like, we don't know, we don't know. Right. And so I hope that you'll keep talking about it. Because, you know, to some degree, they, she's still your therapist, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, like once I, I always think once I'm somebody's therapist, I'm in my heart, I'm always mm-hmm. the therapist. So, so my guess is there's probably room for that dynamic, and it's very clear to me that you care a great deal about your therapist and um, wish to be a source of comfort and support for her, um, um, and wish to avoid being you know uh a distraction for her while she's you know dying yeah um and um i you know talk about it yeah that's what i would do
0: yeah um to piggyback on that what i'll say is do what feels right to you andrea yeah if you want to reach out reach out sounds like you do and is that a song lyric if you want to reach out reach out if you want to did I get? Oh, it's Cat Stevens. Cat Stevens, yeah. Um, and also I wouldn't worry about professional boundaries because that's over. Mm-hmm. Uh, your relationship as a therapist uh, client is is officially over. Mm-hmm. Although uh, ethically speaking, that's never really over. But the given the circumstances, uh, you know, she, your therapist doesn't care about losing her license at this point, point. Right? <laughs> and two it 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 wouldn't happen anyway like if if you if something weird happened and you made a complaint uh, i cannot imagine the uh, you know state board or uh, a court of law saying that the therapist somehow harmed you you know in this process so mm-hmm. um you know without knowing more details mm-hmm. um but a very Uh, least, that's not your responsibility. Mm -mm. You as a client are not, and too many clients worry about this. They're just like, I don't want to violate the therapist's boundaries. You know, there are a few exceptions to that, like don't show up at their house, for example. If they're with their kids at the park, you know, don't approach them uh, if you're a client. Mm -hmm. You know, just, just those kinds of things. But asking to hang out, you know, Andrea, if you're just like, oh, you know, I want... I want to, I'm, I'm just thinking about my therapist who is in hospice right now. I, I want to reach out, I, but I don't want to cross boundaries. You know, just reach out. The, the The other thing I'll say is from personal experience, I hadn't really thought about it till just now, is I had a friend actually who I worked with at my very first therapy job, post-grad, and he was in charge of the domestic violence uh, program. And we would talk for hours and hours. You know, it was one of those things where, in between clients we would just bop into each other's office he he was uh i don't know 20 years older than me or something but i i just remember really bonding with him and he uh uh late 40s early 50s had some kind of lung disease that occurred very quickly and mm-hmm. he Left sick. I remember he he said, "I said he's like, yeah, I just feel really. I've been dealing with this sickness for like a month. I just have not been recovering." Mm. And then I heard that he was uh, extremely sick and in the hospital, and and might be dying. And so I called him because I wanted to reach out. You know, I had a question of just like, well, am I crossing some sort of boundary? Sure. But I called him. And I think his wife answered the phone and said, who's this? I said, you know, this is Kirk, his, his co-worker. And she didn't know me. Sure. But uh, they, the wife, or maybe he said, or something, but they were very abrupt with me. They were like, uh, he's dealing with something right now he can't really talk by. You know, it was very, very quick. Oh, wow. But totally get it. You know, he he could have been... Wheezing. Yeah. He could have been right. being transported from one room to right. another. He could have been pre-surgery, post-surgery. Right. He could have been just not interested in talking to some, you know, co-worker of, mm. her, of his. And uh, I get that. So, But I don't regret it. No. I don't regret calling him. No, of course not. And uh, uh, because, as you were saying, Bob, it's a messy situation. H- how are you supposed to know what to do? It's not yeah. going to be clean. Yeah. It's There's not going to be an invitation <laughs> sent to you, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I recommend reaching out in ways that allow the, your therapist to say, I, I I can't really talk right now. You know, don't just show up at the hospital, for example, you know, but calling, texting, emailing, that kind of thing. And in all likelihood, they'll appreciate it. Uh, worst case scenario, they're just busy and they'll just say not right now. Yeah. And, And, uh, I recommend that for really all sorts of situations. I think uh, in a lot of cultures, we're too concerned about politeness and boundaries and cleanliness in these situations. And life is not about that. And I don't know anyone on their deathbed is just like, oh, I'm so glad I avoided humiliating (laughs) myself in those kinds of situations. You know, like, I don't know if anyone is. Uh, happy that they were careful mm. in those situations. So you know, uh, do do what feels right to you. And right and I'm just really sorry that you're going through that. It's yeah. it's very it's a huge loss. And I'm really glad that your therapist is mm. allowing that to happen. I I know a lot of therapists that will do that. Mm-hmm. They'll it, they'll uh, stay in contact as they're as they're dying. Invite mm-hmm. them to the funeral, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I think that it's like the last gift a therapist can give their clients. Mm-hmm. Listener Danny says, she says, I was contacted by a social worker regarding getting therapy. Hmm. I explained my issues and how I deal with being unable to cope with my feelings of day-to-day life. They told me that unless I have practiced healthy coping mechanisms for six months, I am not allowed to meet with a therapist. Is this a regular practice thing or does this seem odd in your opinion? Bob, what do you think?
1: Based on what I'm hearing here, it seems very odd like there's no assessment, but there's this prescription of something about coping. I, I sort of think that, um, that would be a therapist wheelhouse. If somebody actually <laughs> needs help coping, right. you know, why not roll your sleeves up, pitch in, give a, give some help. Yeah. Um, I've done that many times. Um, so that seems rather odd. Now you if I heard this right, uh, this social worker called Danny up and, Basically to say, I'm not going to be your therapist. You should do coping. Uh, I was contacted by a social worker
0: regarding getting therapy, explained my issues and how I deal with. Uh, and then they told me that unless I have practiced healthy coping mechanisms for six months, I'm not allowed to meet with a therapist. Huh. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to imagine why a social worker would just call someone out of the blue. But uh, I'm assuming that There's Danny some kind of- just... Connected with a social worker or something
1: and somehow, yeah,
0: yeah. So you know, Danny, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what country you're in. You know yeah. that that can be a factor as well. But as you're saying it, as Bob was saying, yeah, this is a hundred percent odd and unethical potentially. Mm. Uh, if you have a broken arm and you go to the ER and they're just like, "Come back to us after the after the bone has fixed itself," uh, <laughs> that's essentially what this person is saying to yeah. you. Uh, you know, six months of coping skills. That's why I'm calling a therapist. Right. You numbskull. You know yeah. what I mean?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, it's victim blaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I don't know if it was some other kind of issue. Like some, sometimes there are, and I'm not this way, but there are uh, pr- practices that therapists will engage in where they'll be like, they'll detect, say, that you're an addict or something, you're, and you, you're not sober, mm-hmm. and so they'll say you got you got to get sober. Mm. I will work with people like that because I think that therapy can help with sobriety and, yeah. you know, efforts <laughs> and often, uh, you know, substance use is due to traumas and whatnot yeah. and, 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 and disconnection from humans. So, uh, but yeah, on the surface, uh, it sounds ridiculous. Sounds weird. Yeah. Uh, question for Bob from soft noodles, uh, annual patron, soft noodles from discord. Hmm. She says, Uh, I have a question for Bob. I am almost 25 and I have a fair dose of childhood trauma Mm -hmm. that has shaped me in some very fundamental ways. I'm going to therapy and doing my best to heal, but the idea that this is my life truly feels devastating to me at times. Mm. It feels unfair and cruel and sad that my symptoms are so constant and brutal. My trauma makes me miss out on a lot of the things that make life worth living. And sometimes I feel like, There is no point, and I want to give up. In my efforts to not give up and somehow embrace my life as it is, I have been thinking about how it feels like I'm in this ongoing grief process about all this. Hmm. I wanted to ask, Bob, do you grieve your childhood trauma and the impact it has had on your life? Are there things you do to make meaning out of all of it? For
1: sure, all of that. Yeah, grieve. I can't say that I experience sadness the way I used to about what happened to me. Um, There are ways in which I'm impacted now that make me frustrated, angry sometimes. Lots of shame. Well, what are you going to do, right? A good amount of fear and a good amount of sadness. I was, um, about three weeks ago, I was sitting with this couple who both are childhood trauma survivors. They're really lovely. They've been together for half their lives. And they're young people. They're in their mid thirties. And I said to them, if you never, if you chip away at your connection with one another, you just keep chipping away at it. Cause it's very hard for them. They, they love each other. They really adore one another. they like being together. They, they, it's a beautiful little family they've got there. And, um, they are both reticent and can be with withdrawing, not, not ill tempered or anything like that, but just like, um, um distant. Um and I said, So if you chip away at that, will it have been a life worth living? And they both were very immediate to say, absolutely, absolutely a life worth living. So I, I think about that, I think and I you know what I said to them? I said, Me too. I chip away at me and I agree it's a life worth living. So I know you're twenty five, right? I know you're in a lot of pain and I'm very sorry about that. And I believe you can make a life worth living. And, you know, like, it's a tough truth. Like Kirk has said this here to me. He said this on the podcast, I'm sure, many times, is that once touched like that, you probably are going to be chipping away at it forever. And you may never cross some finish line or whatever that is anymore. But that's okay. That's okay. You can make a life worth living. Um, I'd be kind of curious to see what you say to yourself in five years. In your efforts to do that, hang in there. Mm. Keep going. Mm. You'll be all right. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if you'll be all right. I think if you keep going, you'll find peace. Uh, you'll find bumps. Yup. And I think ultimately you'll be glad you did. It's beautiful.
0: Thank you. What meaning? You sort of answered it, but just to be more specific, what oh, right. meaning do you make out of all of it?
1: Yeah, me, like, you know, my whole work field, my whole work choices is, is um, making lemonade out of a lemon. Um, good thing about being a trauma survivor at least this trauma survivor um, is it has informed um, some capacities I have as a therapist. I don't know what I'd be like otherwise. Nobody can know. But I think um, um, there's a kind of empathy that um, I have that I don't know that I would have if I weren't. That doesn't mean it's good to be a trauma survivor. It isn't. And if I had my druthers, I would not be. Um, But... Uh, one of the meanings I make out of the things I went through is it gives me a capacity to relate to people who've gone through and chewed similar dirt. Um, and, uh, I do mostly couple therapy these days. And so I find that I can more, I can relate to each person's struggle, even when their struggle seems in opposition to one another. Like it's a, it's apparent to me how people make sense even when they do behaviors that, um, keep them stuck in their conflict, um, how those behaviors are an attempt to have connection or have a sense of safety in the connection. And um, um, given that that happens to me a lot, where I find myself, let's see, how do I want to say this? Mm, Feeling angsty. I have a part of me that's sort of withdrawing and I have a part of me that's sort of pursuing and I have a part of me that's sort of frozen um, when I come across withdrawing, when I come across pursuing and when I come across cross freezing, I get it, I get what that's like. And, um, it's useful to be able to frame that. So I said to this one guy about, I don't know, two months ago, I'm like, he, he's a trauma survivor, uh, childhood trauma. Um, and he witnessed a lot of domestic <coughs> violence. Um, I, I said, it's like you're in a trench and the bullets and the bombs are whizzing by, and you got somebody in the trench with you. And when you're that scared, you don't have the capacity to look over and say, Hey, how's your day? All okay. you're trying to do is just get through the day. And that's what it's like for you in your relationship with yeah. your partner. And he said, nobody ever said that to me before. That's mm. exactly what it's like. Mm. That was, that was good. Good, 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 um, good moment. Cause it, it's validating of what how he feels and it makes sense of what he finds himself doing, which is, you know, pretty, pretty withdrawn. But, and uh, incurring a lot of
0: complaints from partners yeah. that are saying you're withdrawn.
1: Yeah, exactly. And,
0: and you're like, oh, there must be something wrong. With right.
1: You. Right. Yeah. Which I think, you know, he probably has a corner of his brain that gets critical like that. But, but it is, it's like bullets and bombs whizzing by his head all the time. Yeah. So, um, that's useful. Do you that's, tell your clients that you were traumatized? Yeah, I, I don't make a thing of it, but yeah. Uh, if I think it's relevant, absolutely. How do you make meaning
0: out of the fact that you were traumatized and I wasn't? Not us specifically, but like that some people just roll the dice and come up with snake eyes and others get a seven.
1: Um, I think, well, I mean, I could put myself on a continuum. The thing I went through is it was it was tough. And it wasn't the worst thing a person can suffer. Mm. I, I do have a sense of perspective. Um, there's, there's, there, it could be far more worse for me than than it, than what it has been, and people in this world have much harder time than I do. So I think it's a question of perspective. I don't really feel snake eyes.
0: Okay, but you know, for people like Danny or sorry, soft noodles, who suffer daily, yeah, and others like me just sort of whistling through life, you know, privileged and not traumatized in this way anyway. (laughs) Uh, how do you, do you ever think about that? Do you ever think like, why did I get the short end of the stick in this situation? I don't even know if you see it that way, but
1: I I don't actually, I don't have, I mean, I love you, but I don't, I don't have envy. (laughs) Um, the the thing that I one of the things I value in our friendship is that um, you provide a little bit of perspective and um, um, a sense of what else is possible. Because in my little myopic worldview, I can sort of th- see things a certain way, and then and then you come along and you're like, oh, you mean you don't feel safe? Like literally, you don't? Oh, that makes me sad. I'm like. Oh, you mean people do feel safe, right? It's like, I forgot, <laughs> or I don't know. So so um, I don't have envy for you, and um, I appreciate, though, that you show me um, that there's more to life than what my eyes are used to seeking. Seeing. So there was
0: never a point where you thought, how come, even in your own family, really, how come I was the targeted one, and my little brother wasn't? You know that did, that never you never wrestled with that.
1: They all got it.
0: Okay. Or the next door family didn't get it. You know, like
1: yeah. No, I never did. You never did. No. Yeah. No. Actually, I think when I was young, I presumed everybody was afraid of their dad. Oh. Yeah. I had. I remember when I was twenty-three. I had this friend, and her dad worked at this office and my dad worked at an office and they wore the same kind of shoes. They wore those clunky wingtip wing shoes. You know what those look like? Yeah. 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 And she'd say I'd I'd be home and I'd hear the sound of my dad's footsteps coming up the driveway and coming into the house and the clump 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 and it would just fill me with joy. And I was like, "Geez, I heard that same thing. It used to scare the hell out of me." Hmm. Right? It was quite something to think that there's more to experiencing than than my quote normal yeah yeah i think i might have gone on a little bit of a tangent there
0: no Mm. by the way soft noodles annual patron soft noodles won the discord commenter award this year
1: really yeah what's the discord commenter award uh
0: i'm not sure yet but i'm gonna send soft noodles something very soon (laughs) so congratulations to soft noodles for uh being nominated by the other discord people as very kind and very active Mm. and very helpful um, and engaging and again, nice uh, because you know, online commenting isn't always nice. No hang Uh, in there. Yeah. Keep going. Hang in there. Patron cat from Ontario says when I cry, my fiance seems to be at a loss and not comforting at all.
1: Mm.
0: do I need to be a better communicating do I need to be better at communicating my needs? I mm. have trouble knowing my needs or mm-hmm. does this reveal his discomfort of being vulnerable in situations? What's a way to manage this I have I have more of an avoidant attachment style. Mm. Evidently therapy has softened me a bit because I used to never cry, mm-hmm. but I can't say I don't feel any less alone now that I am crying more. Bob, what do you think?
1: I think that it might be that your partner is scared and um, doesn't know what to do and perhaps feels pressure to respond a certain way or maybe even has a sense of wishing to escape from something that is dangerous. I know it's not dangerous, but you know, bodies and all, sometimes they'll respond that way and perhaps um, doesn't see your relationship as a resource for him or her when you're having tears. Like just cause you're having tears doesn't mean that they don't still have need. What I've been noticing with couples lately is that when the one partner can um, slow it down and address the fact that they not, they don't see their relationship as a resource for them, but think that they're called to do something. If they can slow that down and, and recognize, Oh, I've, the road's bumpy right now. I need something. I need shock absorbers or whatever. And um, turn to partner that even in the midst of sadness um, um, partner has perhaps uh, a capacity to provide the kind of reassurance that's needed so that my body can settle down and I can be present for you when you're crying. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So what I'll say and piggyback to that is get, go to therapy. Uh, cat, yeah. Uh, Cause that is a perfect place to be working on this sort of thing. Yeah. You know, if you're in couples therapy and you're crying and your fiance seems to not be helpful, one, the therapist might notice it, too. You could just be like, I don't feel like he's being very helpful. This is like a something that comes up and then the therapist can turn to your fiance and say, what's going on when mm-hmm. you see your spouse crying like that? Right. Uh, you say, do I need to be better at communicating my needs? You know, maybe. Maybe. Uh it, as Bob was saying, uh, crying is one thing, and you would hope that your spouse would attune to that and care. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not care, ex- express caring. He probably yeah. does
1: care. Probably cares sometimes. a lot, yeah. Uh,
0: but maybe there are things you can say, like, I'm crying because of this, or mm-hmm. I'm not crying because of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no threat here. And as Bob was saying, usually people are afraid of something. Mm-hmm. And say, does this reveal his discomfort uh, of being in vulnerable situations? Probably. Yeah. Uh, what's a way to manage this? Um, you know, I just, I think Bob answered that question. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, listener Madison says, I'm a junior in high school taking a college psychology class. Wow. What was your favorite topic to learn when you were in college? Bob, what do you think?
1: Oh, I think college was wasted on me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I liked research when I was in school. I liked research methods. Yeah, that was really interesting to me. And your BA? Yeah, my BS, yeah. Huh.
0: I didn't didn't take any... Did you get psychology? Yeah, I have
1: a bachelor's in psychology. Oh, okay. Yeah. If I could do it over again, um, I would um, study development and developmental theory more with an eye on attachment. But they didn't really talk about attachment um, in my bachelor's program. Or if they did, I didn't really understand what they were saying. It was... Um, probably more like an intellectual concept than it was an actual, you know, real important thing.
0: Yeah. The way that attachment theory is almost always taught, it's this... uh, uh, It's like, you know, it only applies to two-year-olds is the way it's often portrayed. Yeah. And it's very dry and very, uh, uh, you know, brief in the midst of ten other developmental theories that they'll go over. Right. And I think, uh, completely misses the point. You know, when I started to do my deep dive on Mm -hmm. it and other, uh, you know, endeavors of learning it, I was like, wait a second, this applies to everything. Like literally everything I do when I'm at work, when I'm on the road and I see another driver, it all has to do with fear and attachment and bonding Mm -hmm. and security everything i am all all my emotions you know most of my not all my emotions but most of my emotions are all related to attachment reactivity and it's all there yeah and it's so elegant you know working model of self and other and you don't have to get into the weeds with a psychodynamic theory you can just you just focus on understandable language and understandable mechanisms of development and, and neuronal development anyway uh So that was in your bachelor's. What about in your master's?
1: In masters, what did I like? Favorite class. Favorite class, masters. Oh, ethics was cool. Um, um, group therapy. That was that was tough. Who'd you have? uh, Sandra Wood. Sandra Wood. Yeah. Um. Oh. Oh. Um. Dan Kelleher taught a class, but I don't remember what it was called. But it had. It was more transpersonal. I think it was sort of transpersonal, but. I, I couldn't even tell you what that class was. I just dig him, and that was a good class. I have to go look it up. Sex was kind of cool. Yeah, um, we were in that class human, together. Yeah, we were. Human sexuality, that was kind of cool. Um, you
0: didn't like that uh, development class that we took where we wrote the myth? Weren't you in that class? Oh, with the- I was. Yeah. I, um, because <laughs> that was a weird no, class. That was a weird class. We, I, we read Irvin, um,
1: yeah, John uh, Irving, John Irving, Prayer for Owen Meaning. I yeah. had already read it three times, so I didn't have to. Yeah,
0: yeah. I I don't know if I've ever admitted this, but I didn't really read that book. Yeah, because it's, I, I read so slow, mm. and it's, it's, you know, it's a full novel, it's a big one. Yeah, it's like, you know, 350 pages kind yeah. of a thing. And yeah, I think I like got, I don't know, 50 pages in, and I was just like, oh, yeah. Like, really, I have to read this whole thing? Yeah. You know, because usually when you're assigned reading, it's uh, a lot of reading, but it's not like 350 pages of dense material. Yeah. You know what I mean? No. Um, anyway, uh, I've since seen a play of The Prayer of Oh, yeah. At Book it Theater. Actually, it was just the Christmas scene, yeah. uh, which is a famous right. little bit in the book. mm mm-hmm. And I thought that the person that they picked to play Owen Meany did not fit the bill because mm. the picture in your head of who Owen Meany was was just was very almost like maybe there's no human that could actually play that character. Yeah. Um, but anyway, my favorite yeah. bachelor's class. Um, I don't know. I mean, I remember a lot of it. I I, I went. I was started engineering. And took, you know, chemistry and math and physics and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, liked it, actually. The math class was really dry.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We had a, a TA who was a terrible teacher. Uh, but what are you going to do? Yeah, right. And then I switched to business because right. I didn't know what else to choose. And I, right. I just, I, I wanted something that was applicable after graduation. And it was, you know, I, I'm I'm in business now, you know. <laughs> And I took a lot of accounting and finance mm-hmm. and economics mm-hmm. and marketing. I liked the marketing side. But my favorite classes in um, in my bachelor's degree were probably my music class. So with all my elective electives, I, and there were a fair amount with mm-hmm. a liberal art or was, as a business degree. But anyway, there were a fair amount of... I remember there were two full quarters of music classes. I saved up all of my... Electives for my last couple quarters. Wow. And I took two full loads of just music courses. That's awesome. Yeah. And one of the classes was composition. And I sat in a small circle with three or four other students and we just like talked about how to write songs. That's cool. And I was completely a fish out of water because everyone was, was classical and classically trained. You know, these are all music majors who are training about to be conductors right. and stuff and, you know, to be like pianists at the, in the symphony. And, yeah. and I'm just here with my acoustic guitar and I'm not even particularly good at acoustic guitar and uh, I'm writing songs and having to transcribe it by hand. You know, this is before a computer. So you, I'm transcribing all my music by I have to like pick it out and figure out is that, okay, that's an a. And is that a dotted quarter? no I don't even know, yeah. you know, I didn't write it all out <laughs> and, because, which is so stupid? It's like, can't you just evaluate a song? Can not I just play it for you? Because that's what I would end up, you know, doing. And the right. teacher, I just remember, he'd just be rolling his eyes, like, "Why is this guy in my class?"
1: Oh, that's yeah, too bad. it
0: wasn't very accepting. Let's just put it that way. That sucks. At the time, they they looked down at jazz. You know, the, uh, this is early '90s, so jazz jazz was considered like the new kid on the block that was not real music. You know what I mean? snobs yeah oh yeah oh my god bob you do i mean have you do you know the snobbery that it is in have you seen whiplash the movie whiplash i i know that story i didn't watch that film it that's an extreme version of it but that's a manifestation and that is jazz and even jazz in school can can be extremely elitist Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's um you know i don't know what why it it start you know why it ended up that way but um there's so much snobbery in these music departments and competition and lack of mutual support and uh my impression is that there's so few paying jobs yeah and there's not a lot of money to be made you know? that like you, you have to f- scrap and fight and yeah. compete, compete. And, and and push people aside as you get to the prize. Nah. And uh, yeah, and I think it's just a culture of that as well. Yeah. It just it, There's just a, like the way that there's a culture, I don't know if it's still that way, in the medis- medical field yeah. where when you're starting out, you, you get weeded out right. or... When you're at residency, you're they work you 24 seven literally,
1: Uh
0: Mm. because well that's what we did when we and even the research shows that those kinds of practices actually cause more accidents and more death to patients. Like science has proven, twenty hour shifts are bad for everyone. So stop it. (laughs) And yet they keep doing it. Mm -hmm. At least that's my take on my understanding. They still do it, but but it's a cultural. Manifestation. It's just like, well, this is what you do. This is what you do. Yeah, the way that like high school start at seven thirty, even though the research says like that's just not humane. <laughs> uh, teenagers are the one group of humans on the planet that uh, their circadian rhythm is is shifted into, uh, you know, meaning that they they wake up, they their body wants to wake up at like nine, nine. or eight or something, yeah. maybe ten, right. and yet they're the ones that are getting up at six o'clock and right. climbing on the bus. At, right. you know. So in uh, in the music... Anyway, so I really liked composition. There was also a computer music class that I took. You know, we, we programmed in C plus and it was, uh, you know, computers are so slow back then mm-hmm. that we would program a song uh, using, you know, C plus. It's just, you know you know, like if you've ever programmed in that basic kind of language and then I would, we would set it. And then the next day we'd get a listen to the song because it would take all night to process. And it was so interesting because you, you do all these algorithm equations that would change figures, So you're literally uh, typing in math equations to create the, the sound wave. Um, you're not like saying play a B and C, you would have to dial in, the exact Hertz of A, B, and C. and in, and the um, the harmonics in that, like everything, it was very wow. um, advanced really. Yeah. And uh, I learned a lot about music and computers yeah. during that that um, and there were some pe- classmates of mine that were just geniuses. I mean, because th- I basically created this song that was this wispy, kind of musical you know five minute thing like it wasn't really a song it was more like sound effects in a way you know like (laughs) we but this one guy created like a full-on song with like chords and a beat and in algorithm form and i just thought like how did you do that trippy um i liked chemistry I liked astronomy. Really? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I, I. In high school, I took uh, with my electives. I took advanced chemistry, just for fun. Just for fun and physics. I didn't have to take it, but wow. I, I liked it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> it's fun. I think chemistry and physics I find to be extremely interesting. I, um, I think I've talked about this podcast before, but there was a, a day when I would buy physics and chemistry textbooks from like goodwill. And I would just read them while I ate breakfast, you know, the way people read yeah, like a the newspaper. newspaper or something. I'm, I'm, I'm just reading a textbook on, on chemistry or something. You right know? On. And, and, and to this day in YouTube, there's all these really great YouTube channels where they will talk about the newest research from, you know, dark matter or, you know, Super clusters of galaxies, and I'll just sit there for 45 minutes and just watch this dude talk about uh, those kinds of things. Do you are you interested in that kind of stuff? Seems like you would I'd be. i
1: casually, I'm interested in that sort of thing, like astronomy yeah. and yeah. yeah, 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 but not as much as me. I uh, no, 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 definitely not. Yeah, plus YouTube is that's what I use when I want to figure out how to plumb YouTube for me.
0: I in the last few years, like it's become my main. Entertainment. Yeah. You don't watch TV. You watch YouTube. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I do watch TV, but if I'm just kind of chilling at night, you know, yeah. Stacey goes to bed before I do. And so I'll, I'll just, I'll just, I, I watched, what did I watch yesterday? I watched a guy make a, a, at home, he made a TV projector, a 4K projector. He made one? He made one. You can't make those. You have to go to Sony. <laughs> <laughs> He made it out of like aluminum pipes and he got an old cell phone off of eBay. And because if you take the cell phone screen, it's see through. And if you, if, because that's how cell phones are, there's a backlight on those things. And so if you get a, anyway, point is, is that from, I watched 45 minutes of him just making, and he also made this, I forget his name, I should plug him, but he also made this um, computer that instead of using fans, it had this, like, bellow system that kind of breathed in and out. And, you know, because you need your, you need air to come yeah. in and out of, out of your computer case. Right. And he created this bellow, but he needed it to be as silent as possible. So he created these, like, magnets and this pump system. And I don't know. Point is, is that I'm a nerd and I watch nerd That's shit. That's amazing. Um, let's take a break and we get back more questions. What do you say? I say yes. Hey, Deserving Listeners. As you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month. And it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy, and you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month today. All right, we're back from the break. So I thought we'd do an OPP, which is an old patron praise. These people... Became patrons way back when, and I like to highlight them for sticking around through thick and thin. Right on, you know, being not just patrons but patrons for a long period of time, because you know that's that's the whole model. Is like when you become a patron, you support for you know um, however long it makes sense to 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 you know like I, I will give money to podcasts, and uh, it feels good to feel like I'm helping them. Continue, like, yeah, you know, They're forever kind of it. thing.
1: Yeah.
0: But anyway, so these people became patrons back in January of 2019. Wow. So almost three years ago. Yeah. And have stayed patrons this entire time. And I'm going to read their names. So yeah. we have C.W. from Bron- from Bone, Denmark, or Bone, Germany. We got five from God knows where we have Christian from Wenatchee. Have you ever been to Wenatchee, Washington? I think so. Yeah. It's, it's You drive through it on your way to Chelan. If you've been to Chelan, you've been yeah. to Wenatchee. Yeah. Um, I have family from out there, from um, from Yakima and Wapato. So Wenatchee is true to my heart. We have a Ash, Ashley from God Knows Where. We have Hannah from Sweden. And we have Bob Gettle. Ooh. Did you know that you became a patron in 20 of 19?
1: Oh, I thought it was earlier than that. No kidding. Yeah. I'm still a patron guys.
0: Yeah. You're yeah. An, and now. you're an I'm, annual patron. I'm an annual patron. Yeah. And we got autumn. Who's also an autumn uh, annual patron and autumn. Yeah. We've communicated with before. We got rich from God knows where we have Susan. We have Mary Ellen. Who was an annual patron from New Jersey. I've interacted with Mary. Ellen. we got Angie from Tallahassee. Uh, Carlin from Toronto, Kimberly from Boise. Uh, did you know Boise is the new, like, hip place that everyone's moving
1: to? I I think I knew that. Have you been to Boise? Idaho. No, I don't I even haven't. know if I'm
0: pronouncing it right, but I think I am. Uh, I'm just amazed that Boise, because to me, you know, no offense to Boise people, but at least the last time I was there, I was just like, yeah, that's a fine place rural town in the middle of nowhere but apparently it's like the new hit place that all the young millennials are moving to they're They're moving from california to boise you know because house prices are lower anyway yeah uh jessica from troy ohio Mm. tara from god knows where phil from seattle annual patron ellie from god knows where and we also got tomcat who is another discord person from australia so uh they became a patron back then we have rebecca we have uh we have actually someone else that i can't say for ethical reasons <laughs> we have allison from georgia we have annette who's an annual patron from connecticut we have a lot of patrons who sign up in January 2019. I wonder what was happening then.
1: Very popular.
0: Uh, Marita from Illinois. Benjamin from God knows where. Anne from Nevada. Jessica from Minnesota. Lakeville, Minnesota. Claire from God knows where. Jesse from Jackson, Tennessee. Carolyn uh, P-Tech. Pete from Burbank, California. Ashley from Texas. Pamela from God knows where. Siamak from California, Lakeside. And Brianna from Seattle. So that is a long list. That's a long. That's the longest one I've seen. <laughs> I think it, it might be the longest list. Although coming up when I'm lo- I'm sort of scrolling down. Yeah. In March of 2019 is when the attachment deep dive came out, uh-huh. and so there's a huge list of people in in March of 2019 that became patrons and have and have remained patrons. But anyway, right on. so thank you all for being a patron and also just sticking around all this time because, you know. That means a lot to me and Bob. So let's read another email here after I make sure that I organize my thing here. Uh, uh, Patron Cotty Wample, who is also a Discord guardian, uh, she says, My fiancé and I play mixed doubles pickleball. Have you ever played pickleball before? Mm -hmm. And my neighbor had a pickleball court, so I played a fair amount of pickleball when I was a kid. My fiancé and I play mixed doubles pickleball at public courts, and I almost always have male opponents come up to me after the games who say, I have some advice for you. My partner and I have similar abilities on the court, yet he rarely, if ever, has had other males coming up to him give to give him advice. I have never had a woman offer advice unless I asked for it. Mm-hmm. I, fi- I found this sexist, sexist but was curious about the psychology behind men giving unsolicited advice to women. What do you think, what do they want out of this interaction? Appreciation, superiority, Bob, what do you think?
1: I, that's a great question. I think it's like an ego thing, right? I I, I don't know. Maybe they want to think they did a good thing or maybe they do want appreciation or adoration, or maybe they like the validation that they give themselves by offering good advice or something. Um, there's definitely a cultural thing, you know, the mansplaining yeah. that, that we do.
0: I think it comes down to this uh, orientation to life that when men in certain contexts, and really this is, you could apply this to women in certain contexts too, but I'll stick with men for now, mm. which are much more prevalent than for women, mm-hmm. that for some men, when they see people doing things that are making mistakes or they're struggling with something. Mm -hmm. There's this orientation that uh, men in general will take, which is, Oh, I need to help with that. Yeah. Whereas uh, like if I'm driving through Boise, for example, or walking and I see someone lost, I don't, I don't have an orientation to help that person because I don't know where I am either. But if I'm in Seattle I used to live downtown down by the space deal mm-hmm. and there were a lot of tourists and I would see people literally walking on the street with that tourist map. Have you seen oh, yeah. that tourist map that well, they give out?
1: Yeah.
0: It's sort of a cartoony map yeah. and I would see people having it unfolded and they'd just be looking around and I'd be just walking to work and so I would walk up to them and say, hey, can I help you? Because I usually could.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and Because the cartoon map wasn't extremely helpful. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was hard to orient yourself and I'd be like, okay, you go down here. Right. And so i was oriented in a way that was it's sort of my job to help right um so i think that for men in in a non-misogynistic sexist way you know you have a plumber regardless of gender and they walk by someone who's trying to do plumbing then they just think oh well i should help it you know that that that's it's it's courteous it's the right thing to do it's moral when someone is struggling um, now you have to have other factors in there Wample, i think to uh result in what you've experienced because they're not reaching out to your husband or your partner your fiance yeah. um and that is that when women are making mistakes uh so so there's a lot of messages that could be at play all of them could be at play one you don't correct men. Men don't correct men in general because there's a competition problem and you might feel like you're hurting their ego.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, a man would know another man would maybe take issue with being given unsolicited advice. Yeah. Whereas women, you know, men are taught that women are incompetent and and know they're incompetent and know that they uh, should receive advice. And women are You know, men are socialized to believe that women are not really a competition. You're not really in competition with men, with women because they're they're lesser. You know what Mm, I mean. mm -hmm.
1: Uh,
0: Another message that men are given is that you're supposed to dominate women, and to do this is to you know even just to be in that mindset of you know I'm playing against this man and this woman, and there's a woman. You know, one of the things you might (laughs) take note of, Cotty Wample, is when you beat them, do they give you more advice? Cause are they trying to make up for the fact that you beat them or something? Uh, another thing that's at play is men are taught. They're supposed to sexually dominate women mm-hmm. and you can't do that unless you interact with them. <laughs> and so this could be like some, uh, you know, foray into that area where they, they, they just feel like they need to, sexually dominate you and or they they want to sexually dominate you or you know something like that Mm uh so yeah um appreciation as well you know they're just looking to to be helpful or something but um yeah it's uh it's awful you know it'd be fine if someone offers help but like with me i as an asian person white people from a certain place in our culture will walk up to me and, you know, and say, what are you or where are you from? Or mm. where are your parents from? And, and it's like the act is not horrible. You know, there's curious, but when you add up yeah. all the fucking white people in my life, yeah, particularly right. as I step outside Seattle or the West coast mm-hmm. and ask me like, you know, they look at my eyes and my skin tone and they're like, where are you from? It, it all adds up to racism yeah. and xenophobia and a particular brand of it, which is that if you're Asian, you're foreign and yeah. you're a stranger, you're like this weird elf that like emerged from space <laughs> or something. It's like we're fucking humans that, yeah. that emigrated like you fuckers did. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. it's not any different than you. So stop uh, fetishizing me. You know, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm fourth generation American, you know, like yeah. I, my, my, my family fought in all the wars, you know. Uh, um, anyway, point is, and that's not true. I it's, what's weird is that in the you know main American wars, I have relatives, white relatives that fought in all the old ones, but none of none of my relatives fought in World War II or Vietnam and maybe even World War I. Korea? And, and not Korea because mm-hmm. the, well, Korea, there wasn't as much of a, of a draft as there was with Vietnam, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think Korea was a lot of just uh career army people, and Marines and stuff, but uh, the draft would be the problem, you know, would be the thing right. and the joining and my uh, the men in my family were aged just perfectly to avoid all those wars. Oh, You know, like my grandfather was, I think, in his 30s during World War II, and my dad was uh, in his 20s, married with kids during Vietnam, Vietnam. which would, which negated you from from selective service, right? Right. Selective service. Selective service. Selective service. Correct. Anyway, but the uh, you know the revolution, American Revolution, the Civil War all those I have relatives in. Um, so stop asking me where the fuck I'm from. I'm from here. Um, so, you know, on behalf of men, uh, Cotty Wampel I deeply apologize for, me too. for our uh, gender. We're j- idiots. You know, it's just stupid.
1: Like, you know, what? I really like though that they're writing in and asking this question. It's a good reminder. And it's also good that we keep talking about it so that we don't, So that we have a possibility of waking up or staying awake. Yeah. Yeah. Patron Lenny, she says, I worry constantly
0: about the people around me. Mm. It prevents me from falling asleep most nights and being mentally present throughout the day. Mm. My own life is very stable and calm, though. Most of my stress comes from thinking about others. I'm truly and deeply distressed most of the time thinking about others. Mm. I also find myself hiding my needs or thoughts from people so as to avoid triggering these other people. Mm. I feel like a different person with everyone as I adjust myself to be what I think they need. Mm. And I got I get a lot of feedback from everyone saying how wonderful of a friend I am. Mm. It is seen as such a good trait by everyone I know, but I sometimes feel like I'm drowning My therapist says I need to focus on my own thoughts and feelings, but a lot of the time when I look inside, all I see are other people's thoughts and feelings. She also suggested staying out of other people's problems, but it's so difficult for me when I keep seeing them. Bob, what do you think?
1: Yeah. um, I like, I I, I don't, I'm not saying it's easy, but I think your therapist is probably telling you uh, good stuff to do. Um, Perhaps... um, uh, your focus on how you feel and what you want—that that's actually the chief focus in my own personal therapy. Um, so there's a possibility that that's the case. You could always inquire with yourself about the pseudo helpfulness that you find yourself engaged in, because I know it looks like it's helping others. It looks that way, right? Because on the surface, you know, you're helping some old lady across the street or whatever it is, helping your neighbor fix their car or something. Um, but really, what you're doing is something for you. And whatever that's something for you is that you're doing is hiding out in the shadows. Like that scene from the Wizard of Oz, you know, where Dorothy and the gang are standing in front of the big booming voice with the smoke and the flames and the whole thing. And, and they're all quaking, they're all scared to death. And then the dog runs over and it pulls this curtain aside, Toto pulls the curtain aside and you see this kind of vulnerable old guy back there who does not want to be seen. And what does he do? He pulls the curtain shut and he says, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And turns out that's the wizard, Mm -hmm. like that's the actual guy and you get to meet him. And, you know, he's a nice guy He has no power, right? He's probably a little bit nervous. He's certainly not the big booming voice that he was before. Um, so perhaps there's some wizard inside you that does not want to step out from behind the curtain and be known and seen. And if you want, there's a possibility that with whether you know the answer to what do I want or how do I feel right now is irrelevant the question is important and continuing to ask the question is important. And uh, my sense is that you'll discover something that in the worry about everybody else is something deep inside you that has need and deserves your attention. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. The only thing I'll add is I I did a recent deep dive on codependency and I would listen to that. There's also a possible, well, no, it sounds, it sounds classic codependent to me in that, Mm -hmm. Uh, the, I, so I recently did a deep dive on codependency, uh, Bob, um, let me ask you a question. Sure. So when you hear people using the word codependent in our field, even they'll be like, oh my God, my client's so codependent. What do you think they mean by that?
1: Um, I think they mean like, like what this person wrote in to say.
0: Okay. I, which, I which know. is what, which are the qualities of what,
1: um, um, being self, sort of, um, um, problematically selfless, and focusing on the other person's need or want. Okay. All right. Well, that's actually the
0: uh, definition of codependency, in you know, in essence, sort of. Yeah. But a lot of times, what I hear people using on the internet, anyway, and and among colleagues, is most of the time they're using codependent as a synonym for dependence, for for overly relationally dependent. Yeah cuz you know the word codependent came from addictions it came from right. you are the co-pilot in someone's alcoholism right you're not dependent on the person with alcoholism you're just you're the, someone's dependent on alcohol and you're the co-alcoholic in yeah. fact that's the that's the original term was co-alcoholic but they wanted to expand it to other substances so they said well we can't say alcoholic anymore we have to say chemically dependent and so the the co-alcoholic we have to change to co Co-chemically dependent, but that's too long. So we say codependent. dependent yeah. but dependent personality disorder is, uh, you know, a label for people who are dependent on humans, not, not a substance, a not very different, su- very different thing. Yeah. You know, uh, a, co- a dependent person is someone essentially that is stuck at the age of like four, where they feel like they can't do anything on their own. And they're terrified as they should be at four, but not at, you know, 35. Yeah. Um, whereas a codependent person is someone like this, who is, Completely f- obsessed with other people's problems, and when they stop and th- focus on themselves, they don't see anything. Yeah. Uh, so it's a defense to focus on other people's problems. It's yes. a compulsion. It's a need, yeah. and that is the essence of codependency. And I, in my deep dive, I, I, I frame it as a personality disorder because it's based on schemas, you know. Yeah. And I differentiate it from all these things. Anyway, so I would I would listen to that that whole deep dive. I'm going to do a follow up, Lenny. Um and I maybe I should have saved this for that <laughs> because I, I asked people to email in about codependency and I, I was gonna kinda review that. But the the cure is the cure for like any other personality disorder, which is to build awareness of your relational traumas and your impulses that shoot you in the foot and and two corrective experiences to make you feel safe enough to focus on yourself. Yeah. And And because until you feel safe enough to focus on the self, you will compulsively and defensively focus on others because it distracts you and and it makes you feel like you're worth you're worth something. You know, your entire as a codependent person, one of the common schemas is my only worth. In fact, you have said this before. My only worth is how useful I am to other people. And so when I talk about codependency, does it? Uh, Because I can imagine it going either way. Do you resonate with it at all? Yeah.
1: How so? Well, I am a utility or so. I've been thinking for many, many years. And um, um, there's an absence of awareness of how I feel and what I want. And um, a lot of my efforts these days in my own growth and development are just paying attention to that. So, like last week... I actually realized I was lonely. I had never noticed that before, mm. and the way my loneliness was showing up was in an irritation. And it was really fascinating to actually go slow enough to see that. Oh, I'm lonely. I want something, as opposed to why is Colleen blah 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 blah. You know, whatever. It's like, well, yeah. What what what's the beef? You know. Well, actually, it's that I'm I miss her. I'm lonely. Interesting. Yeah. It was actually really cool. That was a good insight for me.
0: And it was because of your growth that you could stop and pay attention uh-huh. to yourself. In the past, you would have distracted yourself by doing what?
1: Um, focusing on her behavior and either being uh, attempting to be useful or being annoyed that I that she was not quote changing the way that she should. You know? Do you like, ever micromanage? Is that your kind oh, of? <laughs> yeah, like the the mansplaining with the pickleball. Ugh, it's embarrassing. I can be that way. Of course I can be that way, but I, I can with be. With Colleen. That, yeah. About how she, what, like what do you try to micromanage? Like last night she was putting her computer together. We'd been out of town. She took the computer with, She came back home. She was just assembling it and I'm standing there. I walk in the room. She's busy and she hits a snag and she starts fiddling around and I start saying, well, how about this? And what about that? And blah, blah, blah. She did not ask for any help. And at some point I said to her, i'm just the third wheel here <laughs> you don't need any help let me know if you do but i'm just gonna that right now and she figured it out because she didn't need any help and yeah you know right yeah there's nothing wrong with being helpful no but helpful is great but
0: but at at the cost of you and also the compulsion yeah. to help can be annoying to other right. people it's yeah. not real help it's pseudo
1: help yeah, It's fake help. It's like not real help. I need to help. Mm-hmm. You will let me help. Yeah. <laughs> you better let me help. Oh, my God. I had that one with her. I told you the burrito story, right? I don't think so. Oh, this is many years ago. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago. We're sitting on... Uh, it's uh, it's a Sunday. Colleen's working at the bank still. She'd been there for her whole career. And she's being mistreated by her boss, this jerky, privileged white guy. Um, my wife is... Um, risen from bank teller to vice president and manager of her department. And she's completely self-made. She's a whiz. She's a master at what she does. And as a result of being a woman, she's being paid probably 25% less than a colleague who's a man who's on her same, you know, whatever level in the hierarchy is. And she has three jobs. She actually literally has three jobs. That guy is just the one. And she has three jobs. And her boss is mistreating her, and me being a great therapist is like I've told her many times. Well, here's what you got to do. Here's what you got to do. Here's what you got to do. Not really recognize what's going on. So there's this Sunday when she's complaining about her jerky boss again, and I can feel myself coming unglued. I'm getting so angry because, you know, I've given her very good advice. I've given very good advice about what she should do. And oh, you're coming unglued at Colleen. At Colleen, you're like upset that she didn't yeah. do what she's you told her to do. Not doing what I told her to do, right? And. I know what's going to happen. It's like, I'm going to get really angry and we're going to have a fight and I don't want to do that. And it's burrito day. We're happy to be, we eat a lot in bed. So she's and just to put a fine point out of the sentence that's
0: running through your head is I love her. That's why I'm so worked up about it. Yeah. I'm trying to help. I'm just trying to help. And you're not doing what I told you to do. Right. However but, the, but, many the, times. but the driving fuel is, is um, what exactly is
1: who am I? If I can't help,
0: yeah, if you don't if you don't let me help Yeah.
1: If you don't yeah, by if you don't taking up to my, my help by taking my good advice, like I'm gonna decide what the help ought to be. Then what am I? What am I? I'm nothing. That's what I said to her. Instead of coming unglued, I left the room and I washed the burrito plates, which have that stinky film sticky film on it, so you know there's hard to get clean. So it took me a couple minutes and I came back in the bedroom. And I'm standing at the foot of the bed. I know I don't want to pop, but I don't know what I'm gonna do, and I suddenly started to cry. And I look at her and I say is it okay if I will not fix it? And she says, well, what do you mean? I'm like, you know, to be honest with you, babe, if I can't help you, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what you'd want to do with me. I don't know. I have no utility to you. And she says, you know what, Bob? No, you don't have to fix it. And I didn't marry you because you're good at fixing problems. I married you. I'm with you because I like you. I enjoy your sense of humor. You're good company. And I was both surprised. I was having my own Wizard of Oz moment. Stepping out from behind a curtain was this part of me that says, you're only as good as your utility. Mm-hmm. It's not like I knew that. I didn't know that. It came out of me. And as it's coming out of me, I'm watching myself going, what the hell is this? I don't mm. know this. This is new. I don't know this guy. Anyways, so she reassured me that, yeah, I indeed, I do have a place there. I am supposed to be there. I, I am part of this family. And... Not because I'm good at fixing problems with her stupid boss, who I still hate. Um, (laughs) I hate hate him now, too. Yeah, well, rightfully so. Um, I have a picture of him in my head. Yeah.
0: Douchey looking. Is he short? No. He was tall. Oh, yeah. Slick back hair? Gordon Mm -hmm. Gecko.
1: Oh, that would be gross. Yeah, no. (laughs) This guy wasn't that slick, but he was still kind of, I don't. I I hate him. Yeah. Anyways, um, uh, she could have bitched about that job for three hours a day for the next month. And I would not have cared. I would have just sat there nodding my head saying, I know, he's a big jerk. Boy, you're being mistreated. Ugh, I don't know how you put up with it. And all the stuff that is all she really needs. Right. Which is just my ear, my care, my interest, my curiosity, not my solution. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and indeed, I wasn't even trying to solve her problem. It was my problem mm-hmm. of what am I? What am I? What am I? That's so interesting.
0: Yeah, when I was doing the deep dive on, and I'm glad you had that uh, healing moment. Thank you. And I'm really glad that she respond, responded perfectly. She did, didn't she? By the way. Um, that when I was doing the deep dive on codependency, I did not think of you. Um, I actually developed, as I, I was thinking of all the other people, I don't know why, you know, as, as I was talking, you know, just five minutes ago when I was like, actually you've talked about this before, but um, it's interesting that uh, anyway, mm-hmm. so I, I developed three different types of codependency. There's, there's the sort of classic, which I, I, I called the helpful codependent, which mm-hmm. I think you qualify for. Yeah. The second type was the controlling codependent who, mm. you know, when the same driver driving forces there, but mm-hmm. instead of being like, i'm helping you will accept my help yeah it's i'm just gonna control you i'm just gonna intimidate you into uh doing what i, do say. What I say oh that's i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna force you to do certain things because I know what's best for you kind Right. Of thing. and then the third oh, type basically. was a assimilating or can, what did i call it uh, oh i called it a chameleon codependent where you will just become like the person in their problem uh-huh uh, as a way of trying to "quote unquote" manage it or focus on it, and you know, so the chameleon is more passive and and less sure of themselves. The controlling person is extremely sure of themselves. The helper is superior but not arrogant, and you know, not not a jerk about it, not controlling about it. Yeah. Uh, do you ever dip into controlling? Oh, or I'm all
1: three. Sometimes I'm probably the helper one more than any others but I can be all the others too. how so how so um, I, I can I have a controlling impulse and I can sometimes be pushy and insistent I'd say it comes up most in my marriage it doesn't really come up in other parts of my life in other parts of my life I'm, I'm more apt to be a chameleon uh,
0: we tell let's break it down, so the controlling give what's an example of so uh-huh. because I, I think it's extremely important because there's controlling behavior and then there's controlling codependent behavior which is again driven by that deep need to be helpful and yeah. to solve someone else's problems right. because for my hypothesis was that codependents only feel safe, only feel worthy and connected to someone really or worthy of connection you know there there's this prediction that goes on inside the the soul which is if i am solving this other person's problem then i am safe i will feel safe they will love me they will need me it will be connected yeah. and whatever problem i think another aspect to it is whatever you know if i don't fix that problem in that other person, they will become too distracted by that problem and they won't be there to love me. You know, they, they'll be too stressed out oh, to, yeah. to pay attention to yep, me. Yep, I, yep. I need to solve their problem so they, they can be relaxed enough to actually pay attention to right. me. Um, so when
1: you were controlling, like as an example, was it driven by that? You know, I might, it might be that I feel a sense of controlling more than I do whatever a controlling it. person does. Like yesterday, she's loading up the car. She's putting a computer day yesterday. She's putting the computer screens in and she says to me, how do I move this seat? Because it, it was my car. And like, I tell her how to move the seat and she's like, I don't, I'll just do it this other way. So I go around the car and I move the seat and she's like, Bob, you're in the way. <laughs> I'm like, okay. All right. I'm being helpful. Yeah. But not really helpful because it wasn't what she wanted. She didn't need me to figure out how to arrange her computer screens in the car so they could come home. Like, right. You know, I mean, come on.
0: So that's not controlling. When I think of controlling, it's like, I mean, you could categorize it that way. But yeah, you- the typical behaviors I was categorizing under that label is, yeah. um, you know, abusing someone and yeah. and pushing them around and threatening right. threatening them threatening like them. if if you don't you know i guess using your example it would be like um you don't know what you're doing with computers i know yeah this is my car and i'm gonna do it because you don't know what you're doing here yeah. and you've screwed it up before we yeah. all understand that know, you know yeah. it it pushes the Target what I call the person of concern, or the under what's considered the underfunctioner, into a position of dependency. dependency. Often, yeah. um, whereas the helpful codependent is not necessarily pushing someone into a childish position. Yeah. You know? no. But how, how do you chameleon to other people's problems? I think of one relationship where you might go to in your head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, which one? Well, I, I can't say on the air, but okay. Anyway, like, what what's it like to chameleon?
1: Um, I try to be useful. I try to fit in. I'm a pretty good guest. I'm not a good host, but I'm a pretty good guest. So if I'm guest, I haven't guested at anybody's house like I used to. I used to be an urban nomad. Yeah, I have just a suitcase in my car and spend half my nights. Well, there's one thing about being a chameleon. And there's another thing about being chameleon codependent where you
0: chameleon yourself because you're trying to connect with someone else's problem. You know, their alcohol oh, yeah, alcoholism, yeah, their yeah, personality no. disorder. I don't, I don't do that. Yeah. yeah. I think that, you know, it's just being a chameleon is is separate from Okay. That, you know? okay. There's then a there's a style of being codependent that's that is code, that is chameleon. I
1: don't really do that. Yeah. Okay. Does that that's match how you know me? Huh? Does that seem true? Like you know me.
0: Well, you know, I, I, I've never framed you this way before, so mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm still kind of getting to know this. Well, There'd
1: be a deep dive on me, huh? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that does it for
0: that episode. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.